welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Molly O'Brien. And this is We Podicano, and our band could be your life miniseries. And this is our final episode, a wrap-up, an epilogue, just like in the book. A bonus. Um, I, I'm kind of free-balling this uh, intro a little bit just because, uh, you know, we're keeping it light and casual for this. This is a bit of a, just a wrap-up, our final thoughts on the whole thing. We've had a really great time doing this whole series. So great. It has been a lot to pressure ourselves to move from uh, kind of once whenever we feel like it doing this series to 13 straight weeks with 13 straight guests. <laughs> so thank you all for who have listened yes. and um, kept up with us. Uh, I guess the fir- the main thing we have for this episode is an interview with the author, oh, wow. Michael Azarad, yes. who was kind enough to hop on a Zoom with us and chat about the book and writing it and the bands and their legacy. So um, I think without further ado, we're going to move right on to that. But then stay tuned afterwards. Molly and I will have some final thoughts. A little chat. Just a little chat about Our Band Could Be Your Life. But here is... Michael Azarad. <laughs> Hello and welcome to and introducing the author of Our Band Could Be Your Life. Folks, it's Michael Azarad. Welcome. Thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I want to ask, first of all, you know, obviously it's been 20 years since this book was published. Uh, what are you and I've I've seen like, you know, for example, in the coverage of Dinosaur Jr.'s uh, new album, people are still obviously talking about it. Mm. What what are you hearing 20 years later? Um, what What's like the feedback that you're getting as opposed to maybe when it was first published or like 10 years after it was published? Uh, well, part of the feedback is that is still in the conversation. Um, you know, primarily about the bands that were in the book. Um, mm. You know, there's this whole bunch of Dinosaur Jr. Uh, record reviews that came out recently, and you know, three or four of them mentioned how our band could be your life. And um, so, you know, it is definitely part of the conversation with those bands. I think maybe some of them reformed, partially spurred by the book. I know Mission of Burma, for sure, acknowledged that, and uh, maybe a few others. But other than that, you know, I bumped, well, you know, pre-pandemic, I would bump into musicians all the time at shows uh, here in New York City. And they would say, wow, your book was so inspiring. And, uh, you know, thank you for writing it. And, you know, those are great stories. And, uh, you know, they really got something out of it, even though I think virtually all of them were born after the book ended. (laughs) 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 And so... uh, I think, I mean, even before the pandemic, times were very tough for independent musicians. And the question was how to survive. And you you could take some cues from the, the bands in Our Band Could Be Your Life, particularly uh, maybe the Minutemen. Uh, Mike Watt said, you know, uh, and he said this many times, but he said it in the book that everything is a flyer for the show. Mm-hmm. Not just flyers themselves, but even records. Records are a way to get people to the show. And, and this is particularly true then because uh, bands didn't really make much money from recorded music. And guess what? Right. That's true again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's a really good strategy to emulate from 40 years ago. Yeah. Everything's a flyer for the show. 
think about yeah. that. And so now, you know, bands have so many more media resources for that. They have the internet, you know, and uh, mailing lists and bulletin boards and, you know, blogs. And that, that's even older technology yeah. than what's available Instagrams, now. Instagrams, Twitter accounts. Yeah, yeah. All those things. And um, uh, they, take, they can take advantage of those resources to drive people to shows or maybe to buy, you know, coffee cups or t-shirts. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's about being uh, resourceful uh, on the cheap or, again, as Mike Watt famously said, jamming Econo. So even though those bands had much more primitive technology, the, the situation is analogous to what's happening now. Yep. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I have to ask, you know, I know we had just talked about this a little bit off air, but uh, this book is so unbelievably dense uh, in not in the sense of uh, being a slog, but it's just <laughs> it's telling the the entire life story of a lot of these bands in a very short amount of pages. And I have to ask, what did the early drafts of this look like? <laughs> uh, if you if you if you dare remember the, the struggle. Oh, they were a pure genius. <laughs> uh, I imagine it looked a little bit like war and peace, but for teenagers in the eighties, <laughs> you know, um, it, it, I mean, it, I guess it depends on how you write, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I probably cut down the book, you know, somewhat and I did learn, you know, the value of subtraction, but, um, you know, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think there was actually that much cut out, uh, really, you know, I, I yeah. only wrote down what I really thought needed to be in there. And, uh, and I also realized just the enormity of the project. And if I got carried away actually writing 13 books, then I would never finish it. So <laughs> I, I was pretty, pretty self-disciplined about it. So, yeah. you know, there were certain chapters, I think, that gave me problems just, you know, structurally, stylistically, but not so much uh, in terms of, you know, what information to put in and what to keep out and things like that. Uh, I was really stuck with the Dinosaur Jr. chapter. And um, mm. I was very lucky to have um, Michael Peach, who was an editor at Little Brown, and he's now the head of the Hachette Book Group. Uh, <laughs> he's a brilliant uh, guy. And uh, I just said, Michael, you know, I, I'm at the end of my tether with this chapter. I don't know how to arrange this. <laughs> and he just gave me these sort of Yoda-like instructions, very vague, but just it all just clicked into place, and it all just worked. And that was the real logjam. Um, Mm. You know, that that chapter, uh, just in terms of formatting it, you know, just shaping it um, and uh, it just came together with a few, like, say, kind of Yoda like uh, <laughs> pronouncements <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, having a, a really good editor is uh, a very important thing. Um, along, along the lines of the structure of the chapters, I think one thing that came up for me over and over of, of how you kind of put these things together, but also kind of the natural story of these bands is that it, it almost seems like each of these groups even if they don't have a really like tragic life in general, the, 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 stru- the chapters seem to be structured almost like these mini tragedies in some ways. <laughs> yeah. uh, because each band, or a lot of them, seem to have the seeds of their own destruction in their formation. Like Even from the first like Black Flag, just the personality types of, of, Jin and, of Greg Jinn and uh, Rollins creating this music that was so exciting to people, but also eventually causing themselves to, to break apart, you know, th- things like that. So I was just wondering while we're talking about structure, like, uh, you know, h- how much that was, you know, you, you trying to co- coax these stories into 
narratives versus just like how you kind of see the the arc of of some of these bands and kind of the the specific you know challenges that they were up against at the time you know uh as i was just starting to write this book i went to the wfmu record fair mm-hmm. um uh, which is a you know kind of legendary uh gathering uh in new york city for music fans and i bumped into a guy named legs mcneil who wrote uh uh, an essential, quintessential book called Please Kill Me about the New York uh, punk rock scene. We'll do that on this show someday. Yeah. And uh, I was kind of friendly with Legs and um, bumped into him and he said, hey, uh, he says, what are you up to? And I said, oh, I'm writing a book about uh, American underground, you know, indie rock in the 80s. And he looks at me like aghast. And he said, <laughs> you're not going to write about the music, are you? <laughs> and, and I thought, I thought he was about to pull rank like my punk was better than your punk, mm. you know, but I, mm. uh, I stifled that impulse, you know, to, re- you know, bark back. And I just said, oh, huh, what do you mean? And it was a good <laughs> thing I did that <laughs> because that's not what he meant. He said, uh, don't write about the music, write about the people and the music will come out of that. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I really, really took that to heart. And I only wrote, I only tried to describe the music in that book when it was uh, important to the narrative. I didn't mm-hmm. describe it gratuitously. If the, sa- if, if the sound of the music was part of the story, then I talked about it. Mm-hmm. And I really mm-hmm. followed Legs' advice very strictly. And I think the book is uh, the better for it. But also, you know, I mean, I played in bands from when I was about seven years old to when I was about I don't know, 45. So mm-hmm. I, I was in, you know, nothing you probably ever heard of, although I would plug my band, The King of France, and there we had a, a self-titled album that I'm proud of. Um, but I, I know how bands work, and it's not just music. Bands are mm-hmm. like 90% about the interpersonal relationships. That's what really makes a band tick, and that's what you really need to know about a band. Because you can hear the music, you just decide for yourself. <laughs> but a journalist can find out the inner workings, inner workings of a band, like what made them tick personally, and how that manifested, and how they conducted their career. And that comes out, I think, in virtually every chapter. I, I absolutely tried to do that, and I just, you know, that's part of the. That was in the spirit of of demystifying mu- music and musicians. That uh, is a you know, part of the mission statement of, of that book, because, you know, it's called our band could be your life because these bands, uh, are maybe analogous to, to the way you can conduct your life or your career in anything. Mm-hmm. So that was a big, uh, that was a really important angle to the book is to demystify and talk about the personalities involved. Um, I want to follow up on that, you know, each chapter I feel like ends, in kind of a, you know, with, with a quote or uh, from one or two of the band members that not quite like, not no one can be summed up in a quote, but it did seem to each chapter kind of was capped off with like some sort of analysis of what maybe what went wrong, what went right, what they felt they contributed. Was that, did that just come naturally from interviews or did you ask bands that question of like, what do you think band name uh, meant to the world or what do you think you'd achieved? Uh, no, I, I think that was just my, uh, you know, my zest for a, a punchline. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I, I, 
there's no way anyone, I mean, or at least very few people could come up with a good answer for it. Could you sum up uh, <laughs> you know, your band's career in a, a paragraph? So, um, yeah. so could your band be my life? Yeah. yeah. And why? <laughs> yes. And how? Um, so, uh, no, no, those were all those quotations just happened in the course of talking. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes, yeah, I'm sure I, you know, if I came across it in the transcript, I think, oh, that might be a good, you know, summing up. Uh, mm-hmm. And I kind of kept that in the, my back pocket. Uh, but uh, no, I didn't explicitly ask anyone to sum it up, but yeah, pretty, pretty much everyone came up with something. Uh, uh, also like the epigrams at the beginning of each chapter, almost every chapter mm-hmm. has an epigram. Yeah. Uh, and the epigram for the whole book is um, by William Blake. Uh, I must create my own system lest I be enslaved by another man's. And yes. again, you know, that's what a big topic of the book is about. These people created their own system, not just their own bands, but their own record distribution and radio stations and record shops and um, fanzines, all kinds of things. Yep. So they wouldn't have to be enslaved to uh, mainstream media. And that was a huge uh, thing to do. So, so my last thought was about tragedy in the book, but the other thing I wanted to talk about is uh, humor in a way, because uh, both, at least Molly and me, and I think most of our listeners find lots of parts of this book quite funny and entertaining. And I think that one of the things that I personally find the most funny is all the very detailed descriptions of all these guys uh, and a few girls uh, struggling to get almost anything done with just how like difficult and how imaginative they had to be and how many different kinds of, 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 you know, travails that they would have to come across interpersonal or even just like getting from point A to point B. Mm. And I was just kind of wondering, um, you know, how, how much of that, you know, you felt was funny when you were writing it or were personally entertained by, and, and maybe as the other side of that, you know, you were interviewing the, a lot of these bands, you know, about 10 years after they, their, you know, that part of their career, how much they could look back and say, you know, it was kind of funny, all those like, you know, squats that we had to sleep in and all, all the bad arrangements. And, and, you know, one of the funniest things I always thought of for some reason is Mission of Burma having to t- doing that tour that's completely out of the Atlanta airport. So they have to like do a show and then fly back to the Atlanta airport and then do another show and fly, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. 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 There was a lot of, uh, well, we can laugh about it now, but, you know, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, some of it, uh, is funny. Yeah. Given the distance of, of time and then, and yeah, some of the things that people would say, I would, uh, you know, have to restrain myself, <laughs> you know, like, uh, interviewing Jay Maskus and, uh, talking about how perturbed he was when he looked over in, in the van and saw, uh, Lou Barlow sucking on the eyeball of a cookie monster doll. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I, but it's funny because in that particular instance, I, I, I did think it was funny, but I also felt uh, Jay's, you know, kind of horror and disgust. And, and I also felt Lou's, you know, neurosis, you know, of being jammed in a van. This like a very, three very young, intense young men crammed in a van with little sleep, bad food, uh, you know, lots of pressure and, and alternating with lots of boredom. And that will take a toll on anyone. And when I interviewed like everyone, this is all at least 20 years, well, at least 10 years after, and between 10 and 20 years after the fact. And they had, they'd matured and they'd gotten some perspective. And 
yeah, they said, yeah, I was, you know, I was a crazy neurotic or, you know, <laughs> whatever person back then. And I'm older now and I can see that and I'm fine with it. And that was one of the really great experiences of the book for me was showing how people can have perspective on their younger selves and say, yeah, you know, that's the way it was. And I can see that now. Yeah, that, that particular scene really does just jump off the page because you can just so easily imagine not, you know, not the not even thinking about it. You know, you're just kind of chewing on something in the car and that thing that you're not even thinking about being the one thing that's that's is going to, you know, rub somebody the exact like. Yeah, all those little moments are, are just like kind of perfect little uh, kind of horrible jokes, you know, of, of, of people having to interact with each other in these high pressure situations. Hell is other people. Hell is other in people. In the van. In the van. But that's Hell kind of what I was talking about earlier is like the realness of being in a van. That's what it's really about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being cramped in a cramped little metal box going 70 miles an hour down a faceless highway, you know, yeah. for five or six hours. And you yeah. know, stuff happens. Yeah. We had it's funny, we after um the our our butthole surfers episode, we had someone email us basically to recount their own story of having someone drive them when they were on acid. Uh, <laughs> so clear clearly there's some, I think, visceral uh feelings that come up when, you know, both reading and talking about this book of just, you know, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't alive at this time, but just like the different time and kind of the permissiveness of whatever this was in terms of uh, resources and, uh, you know, people acting the way they were acting, people consuming the substances they were consuming. It just, it sounds like, I don't know, I just feel like you captured an intense time very clearly. And like, I guess, as you said, it it sounds like it is being able to reflect on it was key, you know, in interviewing someone about it a couple of years later might have not had the same effect. No, no, there was definitely some time and, you know, some of those bands had broken up, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, they, they had lots of perspective, but th- there is that funny, you know, dynamic between the, uh, you know, the libertine-ish aspects and the incredible drive and discipline, mm. I think exemplified no more vividly than the butthole surfers who were, you know, uh, reprobates, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? and I self-avowed that, repro- reprobates. Yes, yeah, yeah. I say that with a great deal of love and respect. Um, <laughs> you know, totally depraved and human beings, and yet um, incredibly driven. You know, they they could do all the drugs they want, do all the crazy, goofy things that they did, uh, really weird shows, and just off the rails. You know, behavior on and off stage, but. They worked so hard to be able to do that. And there's a scene in the book where Gibby Haynes, butthole surfers, you know, like he's a big, you know, charismatic guy. And there's a scene where he's walking along a street in the East Village in New York City and he's gathering up cans and bottles for the five cent deposit so he can continue his life as an artist. And, Mm -hmm. And this, by the way, this is a guy who was studying to be a CPA. He could have been a, you know, a quite comfortable, you know, bourgeois kind of guy <laughs> if he wanted mm-hmm. to. Same with Paul Leary. I think they were both going to be CPAs at the same college when they met. And, um, and here he is on the streets of the East Village gathering up cans for five cents a pop. And then the bag breaks mm-hmm. and he starts weeping. Ugh. And that is such a, a moment. You know, here's this guy who's just this complete maniac, you know, on stage. And he has to gather cans and bottles so he can continue to do this. And I just thought, what, what drive, what ambition, you know, what passion mm-hmm. for what he's doing. 
even though he's also, yeah. you know, off his rocker on God <laughs> yes. knows what substances. <laughs> right. Right. The the bowholes really stuck out to me in this book in that they truly didn't even have a home base. Like they were itinerant like clowns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gypsies. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah, they were living it. Yeah, I think you might have just uh, answered one of my questions because I wanted to talk about how again the the uniqueness of the butthole surfers is like of all the bands that like kind of made it through the uh grunge insurrection in the early 90s through the 90s it's like sonic youth and i think it's kind of display uh, uh explainable by them being like a little older a little more mature a little more like serious and business oriented and like maybe dinosaur jr kind of because of jay mascus's willingness to like continue on when other members have quit and then also the butthole surfers they <laughs> become like a big alt-rock band through through the 90s uh, but I think that your description there is like their insanity was the just one part and the dedication and kind of seriousness to their craft is probably one of the other reasons that explains their ability to do that. Yeah, yeah. They just had a lot of drive. Um, and, you know, that's undeniable. I, th- I, th- I think the Butthole Surfers are the only band in the book to have a, a bona fide hit. They had that, yeah. that song Pepper. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think they're, they're the very only... funny that that became uh, of all these bands. They're the ones that like, yeah, had the the radio hit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> just goes to show. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask the uh, the book got an audiobook treatment with a bunch of, uh, you know, people who have been inspired by the different bands uh, reading the various chapters. And you read the Fugazi chapter, right? Mm. What did what why did you pick fugazi or did was that kind of like all right let me just take one that people don't want to do <laughs> oh uh oh no no i just we just uh you know i talked with the producer of the audiobook and it just seemed like a good thing for me to read a chapter uh <laughs> yeah. so i did and uh you know it was very fitting i think fugazi changed my life changed the way i look at a lot of things um so i was uh perfectly uh that was a perfect fit for me yeah. Yeah. I had I had read, I think, in a different interview that you had done that you had tried to interview Fugazi for Rolling Stone in 1991 and they asked for a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> or or to not advertise um, cigarettes and and uh, and liquor in the magazine. Uh, both. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was like a million dollars in cash. Yeah. And no cigarette <laughs> or uh, no cigarette or liquor advertising. And I, I duly yeah. mentioned this to my editor and he laughed. Mm-hmm. And that was that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I did, I, I did. I think I was the first person to write about Fugazi and Rolling Stone. I, I did a concert review. They played mm-hmm. this this place called the Ritz, uh, which not not the Ritz on Thirteenth Street, but uh, there was a, a place called the Ritz in the former Studio Fifty Four. If you can imagine Fugazi playing the former Studio Fifty Four, <laughs> sure. Uh, and that was a. As the British music magazines say, that was a stonkingly good gig. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Fugazi is uh, as comfortable in in a you know old uh, fancy club as they are in a high school gymnasium. They brought it. They are you know they were truly one of the great great live bands. Certainly one of the you know best I've ever seen. Uh, and you know they're that's a funny story because they I, there's not much of that tragedy you know that hubris that you mentioned um in in fugazi uh they are four you know pretty well adjusted people <laughs> and um and they just figured out how to make it work and 
they they bonded in the van. You know, there's this story right. Ian, Ian Mackay uh, on their first gig. They were on this grueling drive from in the middle of winter from D.C. to Michigan for a bunch of shows up there. You know, the upper Midwest in, in January mm-hmm. is probably not a picnic to drive in. And um, no. and things were getting kind of bleak. And someone, uh, uh, Guy Picciotto, uh, threw a queen tape in the tape deck. And they're all rocking out. <laughs> and Ian said, like, that's when I knew we were a band. Nice. So, uh, you know, the van could, you know, the van is a, a, a character in the book. It's, you know, it's right. It's just as much a character as anyone in any band. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about uh, some bands that aren't in the book that I uh, found interesting. Uh, and as we as we were going through, they keep coming up, and I, I kind of started to think of them as kind of the ghosts or spirits that haunt these books. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, the, these bands, and I think that the three primary ones are REM, U2, and then Nirvana. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I very much see sense the the order or the reasoning in which you pick these bands. But I, I wonder what your thought is of REM's place in this story, like kind of as the band in the background that was an indie band that was like kind of making it while all these other bands were, were doing something adjacent, but not quite, quite the same. Right. Maybe also you, you two and eventually Nirvana, if you want to expand on those. Sure. Uh, okay. So yeah, REM, uh, sure. I mean, they were, you know, it's just like, I don't know, DOA and black flag Minutemen and all kinds of bands like that. Uh, you, you know, they were Johnny Appleseeds for this whole mm-hmm. movement. They helped build this network of um, of venues and uh, fanzines and record stores and radio stations that provided this inter- infrastructure that supported this whole decade of the indie rock uh, movement. And yeah, I would call it a movement. And uh, so REM is utterly utterly crucial to this you know they uh they, they put in you know countless you know years in the van and they played hard everywhere and they were a brilliant brilliant band the thing is they had uh, a, a crucial advantage a couple of crucial advantages um but the main one was uh that they were on irs which was distributed by i think mca and i think also at one point rca but so they had major label distribution, which gave them huge advantages um, in terms of radio airplay, uh, placement in record stores. And then um, and they also, I think, were part of, I'm not sure, I think they were part of FBI, Frontier Booking International, which is part of IRS, uh, which was the, I think it was Miles Copeland, uh, one of the Copeland brothers, um, who also managed the police. And so you know, REM would get gigs like opening for the police mm-hmm. on a tour, which was priceless exposure. Mm-hmm. You were not going to see the Minutemen opening for the police, who were the biggest band in the world at that point, mm-hmm. on a tour. You were just not. So REM had cert- certain advantages that, you know, like the Minutemen and the replacements and all those bands just did not have. So, um, they're, they're a constant presence in the book, uh, mostly um, in terms of, um, you know, the advantages they had. There's this mm-hmm. scene in the Mission of Burma chapter where uh, Clint Conley, I think, is looking out the window of their dismal right. little van. And yeah. he's, they see REM's tour bus go by. Um, you know, I think there was, uh, you know, there, 
REM had certain advantages. So also they've had so many damn books written about them. <laughs> so, so I think I, that's fair enough. Yes. I, I left them out, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, but I tried to make sure that they were mentioned in many of the chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's no doubt REM utterly crucial to all this. It's, it's, it can't be overstated, but, uh, I was writing a different kind of book. I was writing a book about bands that, uh, created their own system, uh, overcame, you know, even bigger obstacles than REM overcame. And, you know, that's the, uh, you know, that's the, 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 the classic narrative is the, the protagonist has, uh, I think the word is an agonist, uh, you know, uh, some sort of, <laughs> uh, obstacle, you know, that they have, right. have to overcome. Mm-hmm. And whether that's the internal obstacles or it's in the indifference of the music industry or the public or whatever, but they have to overcome this obstacle. And that happens in every chapter pretty much. So, uh, yeah, that's the kind of the heroic aspect of our bank of beer life is right. That class, almost classical, uh, format. Um, uh, you too, uh, obviously being, you know, Irish, uh, did not sit the American underground, uh, thing. Um, but I mean, I mean, they're kind of the analog of, uh, REM, you know, even similar lineup power trio with Frontman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know those two bands personally are, are very close to this day. And so though, um, so yeah, U2 was also instrumental in, you know, setting up the alternative, you know, scene, but, uh, yeah, it didn't belong in the book. Yeah. yeah. You um, do seems to come up more, more in the times that it is mentioned as, as like people being like, Ooh, I want to sound like you two, you know, mm-hmm. in, in their, their eighties format, which, uh, I think is just an interesting thing. And also be, I imagine at the time they're like, see, these guys are in, in Ireland or Indian, and they're making it big. You know, I can imagine how, how that kind of thing would loom in the mind of, of someone who's, uh, you know, maybe a teen and a minor threat or something. Well, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Minor threat kind of broke up because one or two of them wanted to sound <laughs> like you too. Uh, you too, it should be pointed out, uh, we're on island. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's a good question, though, whether that was uh, distributed by a major label at that point. I'm not sure. Uh, but they certainly had a lot of leverage that, um, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, Mission of Burma, for instance, just simply did not have. <laughs> um, but and as far as Nirvana, um, the, the book I wrote before that was called Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana. Mm-hmm. And that book... Um, the experience of writing that book and the success of it changed my life and it changed my life, uh, in an analogous, uh, but you know, <laughs> very s- fractionally small way compared to how it changed the lives of the people in the band. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but that was a very important book event in my life was that book. And I, I obviously saw how Kurt Cobain would wear t-shirts of bands who, influenced him or inspired him or felt needed uh, to have more uh, attention. Uh, and he wore those t-shirts like any chance he got. He always promoted the underground scene as a way of paying back or just simply using his platform to, to elevate music that he loved. And um, our band could be your life partly grew out of that same impulse. I was kind of trying to emulate mm. Kurt. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, our bank could be your life is sort of a prequel to come as you are, but it, 
And I originally got the idea because I was watching this a set of um, uh, like a history of rock. I think it was Time Life. It was a set of like, I don't know, eight VHS tapes or something. <laughs> and I was just, you know, diligently plowing through. And they got to punk rock and they did the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and all stuff. And then it went to uh, Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. And then it skipped to Nirvana. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, like, <laughs> did I just black out for 20 minutes? And <laughs> missed the entire 80s and the, you know, Black Flag, the replacements, who's could do, um, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what about them? They're huge. Mm. And they, they came out of that original punk scene and they set up Nirvana and all those other alternative bands. Where were they? Just written mm-hmm. right out of the history mm-hmm. for the, the reasons that I specified. They just didn't have the major label promotional muscle. So they just were not on the mainstream radar. It's as if it didn't happen. And I thought, someone should do something about this. And, you know, in the true spirit of DIY, I said, maybe I should do something about it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's, you know, and, and that was kind of spurred on by that spark of, you know, paying it forward, uh, you know, paying tribute to the bands that helped make uh, Nirvana's success possible and, you know, in some way, my own success. It's funny, I was going to ask you or, you know, pose some kind of convoluted question about, like, can there be DIY at this, you know, at this time with this level of technology and kind of like consolidated platforms and yada yada. But you're just reminding me that I do think one of the most powerful kind of forces in this described in this book and the function of this book is just putting putting people onto things recommending things not shutting the door uh behind you um i think that is something that can kind of be done in spite of whatever ruling you know what spotify or uh itunes or apple or whatever it is whatever forces are kind of uh distributing music i think the most powerful thing you can do is recommend a thing recommend music to someone else so i feel like that's that makes sense yes and that that whole network that i was talking about in the 80s that was all founded on sharing information Mm -hmm. bands would get in touch with another band and say hey uh whose floor can i crash on in st louis and they Mm -hmm. you know uh they someone would look up in this like you know spiral bound notebook st louis st louis okay uh yeah yeah, so and so give them a call tell them i sent you and so, yeah, so Greg Ginn from Black Flag might tell Bob Mould from Husker Du, here's where you can stay in St. Louis, and mm-hmm. here's where you can play. And maybe here's a radio station you could drop by and, you know, play your record or something. And it was all about information sharing. And, you know, what is the internet but information sharing? Yeah. So that, that is, you know, just uh, a force multiplier uh, beyond anyone's wildest dreams. But that carries over into all kinds of things. You know, the DIY, it's actually way easier to DIY now. But, mm-hmm. but th- this whole thing was founded on, for instance, um, you could make your own magazines. You could do fanzines. And that was enabled by uh, a technology called the photocopier. <laughs> which was Xerography. Kind of, kind of new back in yeah, the early great. 80s in terms of being available to regular people. After, you know, by, by that, at that point, you could start to make your own magazine. You could control your own media. Um, mm-hmm. Recording 
equipment became uh, cheaper and more uh, democratized. So you could record cheaply, which means you didn't have to sign to a major so they could bankroll your million dollar, you know, debut album. You could record, mm. you know, a double album for whatever it was, like $2,000 that they spent on. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, all the stats in the book that was like, uh, that are the people saying, yeah, I don't think our entire recorded output costs more than like $6,000 to put together. You know, right. so I, I loved all that stuff. Right, right. And there's all kinds of uh, technology that, you know, college radio people kind of commandeered that. So now you have your own radio network, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all kinds of things like that that enabled uh, people to do it themselves. And now you not only have a photocopying machine, but you have the internet. You could just post all kinds of things uh, worldwide instantly. You mm-hmm. can do amazing recordings in your bedroom with you know technology that was beyond the wildest dreams of anyone in 1981. Um, and uh, all these things are technology empowering people and democratizing the making, not just of music, but all kinds of media. And that's just huge. And I think that's another thing that people uh, today take from our bank of beer life is the idea mm-hmm. of controlling your own media and how you can do it. And the tools were pretty primitive then. They're very sophisticated now. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is learn how to use them and have some you know, passion and inspiration about it. And you can do some pretty cool stuff and very effective stuff. And you see that all the time. That's, uh, you know, that's a, a legacy or at least, you know, a kind of a, a descendant of what the bands in this book were doing. Yeah. It's, it's thrown in a sharp relief to, we had uh, uh, Rob Sheffield on for mission of Burma and just hearing him talk about, uh, you, you know, he grew up in the Boston area, just going to a record store in Boston being like, will they have this fanzine yet? Um, maybe it'll come in like a few months, just like not even the access to the things being so much less consistent or available. And now, yeah, everything is, is at the tip of your fingers, as as they say. Right. And what are you going to do with it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully something cool. Hopefully something cool. Yeah. Um, well, I was wondering if in the last few minutes of this interview, we could uh, maybe pivot away from uh, our band for a second and talk about another thing that uh, you've put together that we are big fans of, uh, which is rock critic law. <laughs> uh, would you mind chatting with us? Because the the whole structure of our show is, as Molly said, we read a different book about music every episode. So we encounter, and you know, from things that you know we we very much love and respect to things that are maybe on the uh, the more uh, uh, pulp side of, of music journalism. So uh, we are big fans of of all the things in uh, rock critic law. Oh, great! And um, we you know we even have a, a few of our own. So just to inform our our audience listening, uh, this is something that that Michael put together. Just and I want to ask where this came from, but uh, uh, kind of detailing the uh, best of the banalities, the recurring banalities that you see in rock music writing. And I'll just read a few of my favorites off. If an artist stops trying to progress and makes an album that sounds like the old stuff, that is called, quote, a return to form. Uh, Two or more guitars at the same time must be, quote, dueling. Uh, A band's second album is always their, quote, sophomore effort. Uh, Efforts are never freshman or junior or senior. So, you know, that that kind of thing. And I, I was wondering, uh, you know, when you, this might have, for you, started going from uh, maybe something that you thought was personal or something that you were noticing, just something that you realized would resonate with people to identify this thing. 
Uh, well, it, I, it, I don't know. It start, I can't remember you know, which one was the first, but I just uh, started noticing that these and I, I thought someone should start you know, compiling these. Um, yeah. Because I've been seeing them. I've been reading you know, music writing since I was a you know, kid, probably 10. You know, and I saw a lot of these things, these tropes, these cliches repeated over and over and over. It's just funny. It was this is kind of lingua franca of writing. It's mm-hmm. something that I think some people feel they have to do to feel like they're part of the, the union. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, and and so I, I guess I just um, maybe I was hungry for uh, tweet content. <laughs> and I, I tweeted we, one all, out. we all love having content. You yes, know, exactly. Content, content is king, right? <laughs> Um, so I, I, I just tweeted out, you know, one of them and I had a hashtag rock critic law and the tweets just started, you know, catching on. And I, I just kept thinking more and more, I'd be just like lying in bed, you know, at night and a woman would pop into my head. Oh yeah. I got to write that down and tweeted out the next day. And they just started compiling. And I just, after a while I thought it'd be fun to do a book of these. I don't know how I do it, but, uh, and, um, I pitched it as a book and I, I said, um, I want to do a hundred of these. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I only had 50 <laughs> <laughs> at the time, but the, the rest of them came really quickly. And then also, and a few people uh, replied on Twitter with some really good mm-hmm. ones, which I uh, put in and I uh, credited them in, at the back of the book. And uh, so it just kind of, you know, worked up from there. And I thought, you know, like, who could illustrate this? And I thought back uh, to uh, the first time I went to Seattle, uh, early 92, to do a, a Rolling Stone, big Rolling Stone feature on, um, uh, on the Seattle scene. And then and, mm-hmm. and the same issue, a cover story on Nirvana, the one where Kurt's wearing that T-shirt that said corporate magazines still suck. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very much thinking about making merch for this podcast that just says corporate podcasts still suck. Yeah, and yeah, and hand, nice hand scroll. The handwriting, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I met a guy, I, the first thing I did, like I caught off the plane and went straight to a party thrown by a guy, guy named Ed Fotheringham, <laughs> who uh, uh, was a singer in a, a band that featured a couple of people from the Mud Honey, from Mud Honey, uh, called The Thrown Ups. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> and uh, I, I think they had a song called Eat My Dump. Yes. <laughs> and... Uh, and Ed is a super cool guy and uh, just remained friendly, you know, in the years ever since. And he, in the intervening years, he became a, a leading illustrator. He's, you know, illustrated for the New Yorker and probably, I think the Atlantic, I don't know, a bunch of really prestigious places. And he's really, really good. And I asked him to do it and he said, yes. And so, you know, I kept it indie real. <laughs> and Ed is so, so brilliant. Um, there were some... Now I can't remember which ones, but there were some that I just thought, like, how on earth are you going to illustrate this? And he came up with a visual solution. And he's like, it really gave me a renewed appreciation for what an illustrator does. It's not just drawing, it's it's thinking. And he he did such a beautiful job. The book turned out so beautifully. Uh, I I know the... um... The one that we that Molly and I have been joking about recently is uh, when you're allowed to call an an artist's album "quote their most personal album yet." Oh, ooh. 
Uh, and it never is. That's the <laughs> that's the one thing I found is that usually when people are saying it's a personal album, it's it's simply not. They're just trying to they're just they're just trying to do something. It's just a macro that they spit out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or <laughs> algorithm. Yeah. Or I think uh, I think there is a um, there is a rock critic law uh, in the book that says uh, you know if you don't know what to say, just crib from the press release. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. A, that, that's what we were thinking of. That that's the yeah, that's yeah. one of those. Yeah, they might be just parroting that. You know, um, I you know I always say like you know Joy Division's publicist could have said you know I know this music seems really downbeat, but it's really got a you know a shaft of optimism and <laughs> happiness and core. light in the center of it. <laughs> and I guarantee you, there would have been some critics who repeated that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you're like, where, where, where's the shaft? And then they're just like, I don't know, uh, this lyric maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you, so yeah, once that idea is planted in your mind, you know, yeah, you can go searching for it and maybe find it, even though it may not really exist or you just take yep. it because it's been, the idea has just been planted in your head and yep. you know, critics are, uh, consumers. They're just a very targeted consumer <laughs> and publicists are the, the marketers. They're just yes. marketing mm. to critics. Critics, and they're, they're critics are the chorus to demo yeah right right they're yeah they uh they are the you know they're the focus group and (laughs) you're trying to frame the discourse for them so they repeat uh you know what the artists and the the publicists want them to say and you know i should say i i definitely uh committed some of these um you could find some of them in our bank of beer life i i'm sure i said front man for one thing um (laughs) Granted, you know, that was 20 years ago and I've since, you yeah. know, learned my lesson, but I, I committed, you know, uh, quite a tiny fraction of, of the uh, rock so critic there's, laws. There's probably a, me- a mention of uh, angular guitar somewhere or maybe a front man prowling the stage. Oh, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, certainly front man. Yeah, I, I know yes. for a fact front man. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying uh, that, I, you know, I'm a, you know, blameless in this regard, but I, I did learn my lesson and uh at least I pointed out the, that whole syndrome. And, you know, that's the thing. Like, there's, there could be, and I've already copyrighted this, so, don't, you know, don't try anything. But you could do sports writer law. <laughs> you could do wine critic law. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's yes. all kinds, you know, every genre of criticism and writing has, you know, their tropes. Look, if a wine tastes like dirt, it has an earthy terroir. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, as a you know, barnyard, uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. go to the barnyard. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of cliches in, in every you know writerly uh, arena. So yeah, music writing is no isn't unique about that at all. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much for stopping by. Um, as we were saying at the when you first logged on, it would been a true pleasure to work through your book this way and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I just wanted to relay to you again from all the guests that we have had on who have been individually inspired or had some part of their the way they think about music and rock music framed by this to all the people who listen to the show, who many of whom reached out from our very earliest days of doing the show and said, you got to do our band can, someday. Uh, and all the people who have been listening along who, you know, all these groups and your specific writing about them really, really still resonates with and uh, inspires or makes laugh or, you know, touches them in some way. So, uh, you know, thank you very much for coming on the show. And of course, writing our band could be your life. Well, uh, thanks Chris for those kind, uh, words. That's really sweet of you. Um, and, uh, yeah. And thanks for doing all those podcasts. I mean, yeah, podcasts (laughs) and, uh, and thanks to all the people who 
went on and talked about the book. That's that's incredibly cool. And uh, I'm so honored to be here for the, the grand finale. <laughs> uh, well, thanks again. And uh, once shows open back up, maybe we'll see you around in some uh, some rock show here in New York. We'll make sure to introduce ourselves. Yes. And oh, and uh, look for uh, a project I'm working on right now. Mm. Yes, please. Uh, I'm actually annotating Come As You Are. Okay, great. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I'm adding, you know, illuminations, uh, amplifications, cultural context, corrections, awesome. uh, behind the scenes stuff. And it's it's pretty, uh, in all modesty, I think it's really interesting. Uh, I, I found all kinds of interesting stuff going on in the book. And well, you, there's, there's no pub date, but you'll see. Well, okay. we'll keep an eye out for the pub date. And as that definitely falls under our rubric of, of books about music. Uh, maybe when that comes out, uh, we can take a look at that uh, and have you back on and talk about it. Very good. Thanks. Bye, Mike. Bye. All right, we're back. Thank you very much, Michael Azarad, for stopping by. And thank you again for writing a book that we love to read and talk about. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to kind of have a little debrief of this whole thing with you molly about how you end up feeling about the entire book i mean usually sometimes at the end of the books we're like how how was this as a book for you it doesn't really matter because we've talked already a lot about how this it's such a delightful book that is like, <laughs> i think it's i think it sucks <laughs> actually, you know, actually, it actually i've never talked about no, it so it's much. just such a, a delightful book that's like funny and sad and inspiring and mm-hmm. um you know, interesting just in like how the mechanisms of, of music worked at this time. Yeah. I think it was just such a, I don't know the, we haven't done a ton of like scene memoirs mm-hmm. or, or anything like that, but I think this is like pretty much the best you can do in terms of like the way it was organized. Yeah. Like it kind of carries you along with it. You, sometimes you get lost in the sauce a little bit uh, if things get too, too in the weeds but this, I just felt like, especially the way the narratives were pinned to certain things like, you know, Mud Honey to Sub Pop, for mm-hmm. example, it just felt like it was sort of cradling you in, in its arms and uh, t- taking you through the history. It never felt like a, a drag. And I think I said before that, you know, normally I take notes on a book and like kind of cut it down to cut the beef down to some jerky Uh <laughs> And this, this, it's all jerky. Yeah. It's all, all uh, it's all good for you. It's, and it will travel well, just like jerky. (laughs) You can give some to your friends. Good good metaphor. Yeah. Um, What is your favorite band? Uh, Of this? Yeah. The one that I keep thinking of, thinking about and listening to the most after doing this is the Minutemen. Yeah. I would like to write a a Minutemen movie. A Minutemen movie. Yeah, about the uh, iconic friendship of uh, Boone Boone and Watt. I just, I mean, it's definitely like, I think the only one that was interrupted by a death Mm -hmm. and who knows what they could have been. Yeah. Um, In my head, you know, would they be bastions of integrity like Fugazi? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, But like, but here's (laughs) a thing. I know we were joking about this in the the Fugazi chapter is like much respect to Fugazi but there is something very um prickly about their bastions of integrity and then uh, the Minutemen thing is it's like it's more just like a vibe it's yeah. like their friendship is so good that it does you don't need to have like 
like rules or anything around it. They just like did stuff that made sense to them. Yeah, it it felt less like a an ideology. I mean, it was it was an ideology in Jamie Kano yeah. and such. But that was the one that after I read it, I was the most just I think inspired by. Yeah, of like any you know anyone could do like I keep thinking about you know the average Joe versus the special Joe. The average and Joe the difference the between Joe. an average Joe and a special Joe. Yeah, and that they they were making music for average Joes and D Boone thought he was he considered himself an average joe and mike watt was telling him he's a special joe i think anyone could be a special joe if they make art yes and i i mentioned this in the beat happening episode and i it feels silly and like i don't know basic of me to be using a pixar movie quote for this but the thing that kept coming back to me is that line from ratatouille about criticism which i have to say is a pretty good thing where the 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 book, the name of the book is Anyone Can Cook. And the idea is that they discover is is not that anyone can be can necessarily be great, but that greatness can come from anywhere. Yes. And that this whole book really is just a bunch of people who happened to be great, but also normies and weirdos. Great. Yeah, not, but they were not, much more the rat than uh yeah. than the the in, Anton ego or <laughs> yes, whatever. Yes. No, not normies. Uh th- they're all they're all weirdos, but they came from normal backgrounds. Yes. Uh and had some kind of like greatness. <laughs> oh, I thought his shoe came off. We're still watching tennis highlights. We're from still Infinite watching cast. tennis highlights from our off. infinite cast recording. Uh <laughs> um that yeah, that that all of these guys uh came from incredibly average backgrounds um and were and with started young enough that they didn't really even have any like experiences or anything that would necessarily like trigger or train some kind of like artistic uh flair they were all just like kids in their garage who who felt compelled to make something yeah yeah i think i think the my big takeaways from this book are a, one, the power of DIY, yeah. which I think is still real, even though, uh, my God, my my feed has been flooded the past few days with people being like, "Ooh, Spotify, roast me, daddy. <laughs> like the platforms are consolidating, which sucks, but people are still doing things, which is good. But also, speaking of the, the ratatouille attitude of the, you know, starting small, greatness can come from anywhere. You know what it takes in order for the greatness to take hold? fucking freaks writing for fanzines yes. that like maybe no one read the six people who would show up to like a show mm-hmm. like it it's built off of like nobody of uh, uh, several nobodies it's like nobodies who then find other nobodies yeah. well i think that is also the part of the thing is that the act of doing is in it its way like forges forges the own art and you and mm-hmm. you have to like trying to build something out of it maybe also to use a corny thing like uh, another corny movie reference if you build it they will come uh-huh uh though you have to keep building it for a long time you do that's the thing that uh that is that is crucial is yes. that you can't like give up which sucks and is hard and as we talked about with the uh 155 boys uh pay you know having a life in art is mm-hmm. pretty much uh impossible (laughs) yeah you know fugazi is the is the example of people who you know the the rare like mega success story of diy and in reality it's a lot it's it's true there there are other ways to do it like you were talking about the minutemen and i know we had brian on to talk about uh minor threat Mm -hmm. uh and we talked a lot about whether you know (laughs) how people uh talk to him about like as if you know 
he and Brian or our Brett were running a, uh, a a Discord house or something. But I don't know. Like the Minutemen remind me a lot of Brett and Brian of yeah. Street Fight, who have just like done their own thing, yeah, unabashedly in their own way for forever, yeah, and have in in their own small way figured out how to make a life about it, yeah. Um, Let's, I mean, it may, maybe also Chapo, but it's slightly different because of Chapo's wild early success. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this specifically the Street Fight guys. But I, I, I don't know. I think it's different, like, you know, the the ways that people circumvent doing music now is, you know, another thing that, that makes me think of, of this as a, like a current moment, movement is like the SoundCloud rap guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is a difference between like making stuff on your laptop and like throwing it on SoundCloud and hoping that it like quote goes viral. Yeah. See, that's the difference. It's like the moonshot of like slowly the difference between like slowly, steadily working to sell first 500 EPs, then a thousand EPs, Mm. then 2000 records. Yeah. Then like, like slowly building up versus like throwing shit online and being like, I don't know, maybe Maybe overnight, five hundred thousand people will listen to this, and yeah. then I like get a record deal or something. Right, you're not limited by yeah. only distributing physical media. To which I say, the power of radio is ex- still extremely important. Mm-hmm. Radio is free, obviously it's local, but you know, r- radio is is something that you don't need to rely on, like buying a physical thing or yeah. going to a store or whatever. So I think there should be more. More radios? More radios. <laughs> More student radios? But also, you, you know what I was thinking this week? I, I was thinking about how to wrap things up. And just like, I, I I thought it was so great of just like all these anecdotes in, in the book about people who, you know, were always writing for each other's zines and mm-hmm. stuff. And I don't know, the zine, the zine thing really got me because I do think that then maybe turned into like blogging. And now I don't know what it is because yeah. I don't know where people are reading anything. It's Substack or whatever. But uh um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was basically just thinking that like going on each other's podcasts is kind of like writing for each other's fanzines in a way. Uh, you know who does like a fa- yeah, it is like podcasting is a form of fa- fanzining. Uh, these guys uh, who got in touch with me on Instagram, I want to give them a shout out because I really like what they're doing on yeah, Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're called Anti Art uh, on Instagram. I hope that it has some like underscores. I think it's like underscore anti art underscore. Uh-huh. Uh, they're doing some really interesting. I mean, they're talking about like pop music and, and uh, more than like, I don't know, hardcore indie, but they're actually cover like a ton of a wide range yeah. of music. And they do it through Instagram carousels with good little graphics. I mean, they like turn the Instagram carousel into like a mini a zine, zine. Yeah. In a really cool way. Yeah. Um, I'll try to figure out how to link, link to them. Um, and, and like, you know, basically turn Instagram stories into like little mini zines of like artist reviews and stuff. Yeah. I thought that that was a really interesting way to uh, do this, do that kind of thing. And then podcast. I mean, there's there. Yeah, there is still like networks to do these things, even if it's not Xeroxing pages yeah. and, uh, and stuff, even if that aesthetic is, is very cool. Like, I'm not I'm not trying to steal steal valor where it doesn't exist. But mm-hmm. like if you're talking about something that is basically created from scratch in your house, you get other people to contribute it to it and then you distribute it on kind of like an open source platform in a way. Yeah, that's 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 a zine as a podcast. Yes. I don't know. Uh, which I guess gets me to my biggest point about all of this is mm-hmm. that the real, you know, the real thing that this book is, is a story of relationships. Yes. And that is what you know i mean i guess it's a 
the, the music is very important and people relating through the music is definitely very important and, and coming together through these particular styles and energies and attitudes and first, uh, you know, anger and speed and then a bunch of other, you know, elements that, that get put into it. But yeah. what it really is, is people meeting like-minded people and being like, let's link and build fam. How can yeah. I help you out? Yeah. How can I call you and, and figure out who's who in town is cool, who I can crash on the floor of, Hey, will you, where, what place in your city will sell my records? Yeah. Um, that thing. So I don't know. I feel like that gets caught up. That idea gets caught up in the, 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 I don't know, now tawdry idea of quote unquote networking, but it really, you know, it's important. Your network is your net worth. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, but it, thank it, you, Mr. Business, Mr. World Wade. Yeah, they call me Mr. World Wade. But, Business you know, I, I feel like that kind of stuff gets caught up in that, like, uh, that gross, like, hyper entrepreneurial, like, this is, you know, turn, turn $10 into $10,000. Yeah. But it's like, if you want to do anything in the world, you just, you have to, like, be cool with other people and, and like, figure out, <laughs> how you can help other people and, and, and don't be a jerk don't be a jerk and, like, <laughs> and, and support them and help them hopefully in return they'll help support you and try to try to try to move some records try to move some records i don't know i i feel personally very um uh heartened after after reading this book and re-inspired to like I don't know, keep making stuff. Keep making stuff. Keep talking to people. Keep making pods. Do, doing stuff in person. Yes, <laughs> that's the other thing is that because this book took place in the eighties, mm -hmm. it was unless you were like buying a zine or sending it across the country or whatever, like you were, you had to like go to shows and talk yeah. to people. I'm ready for that again. Although I don't know, I've been seeing like shows pop up and stuff on Instagram. I'm like, oh my god, really? We're doing <laughs> this right now. Okay. <laughs> um, Relaxed and relaxed. So let's end with a little uh, shout out to the fans because it has been very nice. People have responded so positively to this series. Everybody's been uh, really like chill and, and happy with us uh, covering all these bands in this intense way. Uh, everybody's been down with us spending 13 weeks on one book. Yeah. Uh, it's been nice hearing people say like, like we've seen a lot of like gotten a lot of messages like, Oh, I haven't thought about these guys in years. It's yeah. so nice to dive back into Dinosaur Junior or people uh, listening to getting into Mission of Burma for the first time. We got a lot of, of of the bands. It seems like Mission of Burma was the one that people were most hearing for the first yeah. time and being like, "Oh, damn, this rips!" Yeah, which so that's, thank you, Mr. Sheffield. That's the power of Rob Sheffield. It's funny. Yeah. Like I know he, I know Rob is very good at what he does, which is writing for mm -hmm. Rolling Stone magazine. But in a different <laughs> world, uh, he could. I feel like he would. And this is no no tea, no shade, no pink lemonade to uh, Anthony Fantano, but like Rob as a, a music YouTuber yes. would fucking rip. Yes, I'll I'll try to get to do it. <laughs> just one little video, just uh, the you know just proselytizing about the power of the 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 music. I think could be really good. So thank you for all the kind messages, all the the posts on the new Reddit r slash and introducing and also for all the emails and uh, molly i believe you have one email that you wanted to shout I have an out. email that i i would like to to read um or an expert uh, an excerpt of uh i'd said that i was going to do this like several uh episodes ago but this is from a listener who uh <laughs> said uh he's a 53 year old cruster putting the gray and gray wolf <laughs> uh so sh shout out to uh your uh Ch chapo fan elders um uh, she wrote in and shared an anecdote about seeing 
the buttholes live. Hell yeah. Uh, he he said, I saw the buttholes live at the Ritz, now Webster Hall, on uh, December 12th, 1987. Uh, it was perhaps the best show I've ever seen in my life, rock or otherwise. Sun Ra doing an all Disney set at the old 930 <laughs> Club is a close second, but I digress. <laughs> all Disney set. Uh, I was a freshman at NYU that year and saw many great shows at that venue. I recall Fire Hose. Fire Hose. <laughs> and Pear Ubu being a superb oh, bill there as well. Fire Hose and Pear Ubu. Come on. I would love to see that. Uh, I was highly Albini slash touch and go obsessed at the time. Forced exposure was my Bible, but I'd yet to get really into the buttholes. Locust abortion technician had maybe just come out or was about to. Can't recall. I'd heard they put on a wild show, but walked into the Ritz that night relatively cold. All the days before YouTube. Uh, Boston Burma Acolytes Christmas <laughs> opened and were a delight. <laughs> they were super tight and exuberant and they obviously knew people were starting to come up on acid uh, as their hilarious ban- stage banter alluded to. Hey, it's beautiful people. Michael uh, M- Michael Kudahy Riley ex- exclaimed in Woodstockian fashion. <laughs> I'll never forget when Kathleen the Dancer uh, as we might remember as Tada the Shit Lady. Yes. Uh, Kathleen the Dancer bounded on stage wearing nothing but green body paint, a fake goat and wooden tennis rackets for shoes and holy shit when that penis reconstruction surgery footage came on the 30 foot screen you could feel everything shift into total chaos it was gloriously demented and totally thrilling and I wasn't even tripping like many people clearly were but it was the most psychedelic thing I've ever witnessed (laughs) I remember seeing the legs of all the crowd surfers flailing through all the smoke and fire from Gibby's flaming symbol routine (laughs) and it felt like the club staff had lost control of the situation Uh, the whole thing was just totally fucked it's hard to argue articulate the power of the band at that particular time they just leveled that place completely <laughs> destroyed it that two drummer tribal th- throb and paul leary's bonkers guitar so fucking great my most abiding memory of the evening was at the absolute peak of the chaos <laughs> observing a young dude with long hair beard and flannel shirt stumbling past me with arms outstretched and palms upturned in the classic why god why <laughs> why god why posture <laughs> His face was frozen in a mask of sheer terror and he was wailing and moaning in agony, something straight (laughs) out of a lysergic Dante's Inferno. A few hours before, he had perhaps been a gentle hippie who thought he could handle that extra tab and whose friends had unwittingly dragged him to a peak butthole surfer show. Now the trip had gone bad, very bad indeed, and Gibby and co. were most definitely responsible. I sometimes wonder what happened to that guy and uh, whether he ever truly recovered from that experience. Ha ha. Uh... Yes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I think about that show all the time, even though thirty, even thirty-four years later. So, thank you for indulging me. It feels good to rant about it to someone who might even remotely care. Lol. <laughs> we do. We do remotely we do. care. That is. Thank you so much for that email. That is such a vividly written and recalled. I, I am right there with it. That sounds amazing. Oh God, Molly and I really want to do a. Uh, <laughs> somebody let us make an R band could be your life mini series. I would die, especially yeah. if we could get cool bands to basically be the bands. But that was Mo- so. That's Molly's big stylistic pitch for it is basically casting bands to be the cover bands, like the co- our band could be your life. Uh, Co- yeah, yeah, cover, fi- show. cover yeah. concert uh, that I went to. Uh, I think we could do it. I have ideas for how you could structure it. You'd still base it around eat one band uh, per episode, and you kind of try to tell their whole story, but you introduce like basically the early elements of the next band. Yeah. So you're like telling the story elliptically, and of course. You know, even though each band has like a spotlight episode, they show up yeah. in the next thing. And then you would want to like sh- basically pick the five locations, L.A., Minneapolis, uh, Chicago, New York, D.C., Texas, 
maybe Boston. I mean, the buttholes are uh, itinerant. You they are itinerant. They can show up anywhere. That's funny about that email. I mean, maybe you pick the record label locations because they're yeah, the ones the record who are dealing label with locations. people. You do like SST, Touch and Go, uh, K, yeah. Sub Pop. I don't know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Ace that's perfect. Well, see, we've got a great. We've got a great people, idea for this. Please shower so, us with money. Do you have a, a movie producer uncle? <laughs> Everyone's got one of those, right? Uh, I just there's so many good scenes, like the scene so where Mike Watt and D Boone meet, the scene where uh, Fugazi is playing in, uh, like they have to play inside while everyone is listening, listening outside. outside. Yeah, um, the the motel passive aggressiveness uh, with. Um, uh, the with Dinosaur Junior and like the fu- the stage fight. Yes. Uh, so many good, so many good moments. Uh, just any Henry Rollins fighting with a crowd. Yeah, Henry, Henry Rollins just doing. It's funny. I, I wonder if we're ever gonna get a Henry Rollins biopic. I wonder. I kind of. I don't know if that would be his his deal. He would probably be. I would imagine he would be like not until after I'm dead. Yeah. Like I don't want to see this shit. But you get a good. You know who would? Oh, no, I, I. Never mind. I'm not gonna say what? it. Well, I always think of the same like three Oscar bait white guys all the time for the same <laughs> roles. Well, that is the hard thing is that you would have to cast kind of a bunch of anonymous like twenty year olds for mm-hmm. for this thing. Also, the hard sell about this is that there are no women. Uh, well, maybe women uh, can make the thing. We're gonna have to really write. Act. We're really gonna have to write out the character of Tada the Shit Lady. Tada the Shit Lady, Kim Gordon, um, Kira, Kira from Kira Rossler from uh, Minor Threat. Uh, I don't know. What's her name for Beat Happening? Yeah, well, yeah. What's her name? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to her. Sorry to her. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah, Whatever. but uh. I don't know. I don't know where we want to add this. I've had a great time going back through this book. It's really one of the, the fucking best. Yeah. It's even if you've listened to every one of these and feel like you know it, it's just like the 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 writing of it just bears you along. I don't think there is one chapter in this book that I didn't read in like one or possibly two sittings. Mm-hmm. Um and it's great to think about all these bands because they really did the damn thing. They did. Um and you know, maybe they could have gone longer maybe they went just long enough but they it is just such a a potent picture of of a, of a little era of american history that, that the last time you could sell out yeah the last time you could sell out now you can't sell out if you tried yeah you're you're where everybody's in a constant everyone's constant dying strive to, sell to sell out. out dying to sell out make me an nft daddy yes i want to get fun non-fungibled yes um so yeah, the last time you could sell out. <laughs> Just, sorry, Henry Rollins OnlyFans. Henry Rollins OnlyFans. My People new display subscribe. name. <laughs> <laughs> any any final thoughts, Molly? Uh, no, fi- no final thoughts. Head head pleasantly empty. Oh, I uh, guess I guess the other thing is like a programming note. Uh, we're probably going to take a pretty substantial break now. We'll take a little break. We're um, going to try to get some stuff out a little pre- a little after this, but we're probably going to take a hard right turn from a uh, all 80s hardcore to uh only being talking about pop music for for yeah, a while like or pop something like that. and some other stuff hip-hop i have so i have so, some thoughts on some like b- maybe bonus non-reading uh episodes planned we've uh, got stuff in the cooker we're also uh reading reading infinite jest every week over at uh yes infinite cast so if you want if you want to get your your chris and molly fix <laughs> <laughs> um, we're doing a bunch of traveling right after this so it's going to be hard to, to figure things out but um we thank you very much for staying with us keep your eyes on the feed stuff will be coming up if you have any suggestions or requests now is the time to send them yeah uh and introducing pod at gmail.com mm-hmm. or twitter at and intro pod 
Oh, and right before we leave for our uh, exit music for this episode, um, we were joking on the Butthole Surfers episode that every generation deserves its own cover of American Woman. And a listener to the show took up the challenge and sent us their 21st century version of American Woman. Uh, so we're going to be going out on Blanco Kid Productions, uh, a.k.a. Tuppy Be Good, a.k.a. Uh, Lil Tupperware's cover of American Woman. So that's going to be our outro music. Um, thanks, everybody. Yeah. This is great. Thank you. Our podcast could be your life. <laughs> Bye. Hello. This is Lil Tupperware, frequently known as Tuppy Be Good and or Tupper Spaceware with a question mark to avoid getting sued. And this is American Woman for a new millennium. Palestine hates us. Pakistan hates us. Uh, over 200,000 civilians died in the Iraq war. So here's a song about titties. American woman, stay away from me. American woman, mama, let me be. Don't come hanging around my door. I love living in the city. I love I don't wanna see your face no more. I got more important things to do than spend my time going over you now, woman. Uh, uh, stay away. Uh, American woman. Listen what I say, uh, get away from me, American woman, mama let it be, yeah, let it be like the Beatles, let it be like Bill Withers, let it be like my grades, I got B's in high school. Don't come knocking around my door, I don't want to see your shadow no more. Tell the lies can hypnotize Sparkle someone else's eyes Now I'm on, now I'm on uh, Get away, get away, listen what I say I say get away, get away uh, Listen what I say, listen what I say Listen what I say Don't come hanging around my door Thrust, 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 thrust. Mark it. Let's go.